Hey everybody, this is Ray Patelsch, and this is episode 23 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie, selected specifically by our guest, that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. As usual, hope everybody's having a great week out there. We're here to talk about some movies, and my question for you this week is... How many of the movies that we've discussed on this podcast have you tried to watch? If you have, you might have run into a problem that I seem to run into weekly, which is despite having subscriptions to most of the major digital content providers, Netflix, Amazon Prime, HBO Now, Disney+, Hulu, etc., etc., the movies that come up on this show tend not to be readily available through those services. And it's gotten me in this weird position thinking about that, because you pay a subscription for access to these vast movie libraries, but then the movies that people want you to see don't tend to be included on them. Each week, I pull up a movie for this show, and I'm usually having to end up renting the movie or track down a DVD copy or go to the library and check it out. It's probably one of the major expenses of doing this podcast. Not that I'm complaining about that. What I'm complaining about is how is it that we are paying subscriptions to major services like Disney Plus or Netflix, and yet there are so many movies out there that aren't readily available through those services? At what point Do older movies and maybe not fan favorites, but movies that have people out there who love them become more readily available beyond just having to rent them digitally? It's certainly a situation that I ran into with this week's movie where I could not find a copy. And we'll talk about that in the podcast. I won't dwell on it too much here, but it does have me thinking this is an R-rated Fox film, and Disney owns the Fox Film Library now. Now, when they put out Disney+, Plus, they intended for it to be family-friendly, but what does that mean for Fox movies that don't fall into that family-friendly category? Are they going to give us another service, maybe a Disney++, Plus Plus or a Disney R, or something like that? I mean, there are Disney movies or movies that were released by Disney under, say, the Touchstone brand or the Miramax brand that don't fall into Disney+. Plus. But there are so many movies out there, and it just astonishes me that the ones consistently picked for this show don't show up on those providers. And maybe that's part of their charm. Maybe that's why people want to talk about them and want to get the word out there that these are movies worth seeing because they aren't something you can just come across as you're surfing through Amazon Prime's catalog or Netflix's catalog. Maybe they're movies that have to have that extra attention put on them. Just curious as to what you guys think about it. It's something I've been thinking about a lot in the month since we recorded this. But before we get into this week's episode, let's talk a little bit about last week's episode, particularly our Friday inquiry related to it. You know, Even in the time since I recorded the intro to last week's episode, I've had several instances where I've referenced Hot Rod again and again. So as I said at the end of last week's episode, this is a movie that's sticking with me for some reason, even though I wasn't a huge fan of it when I first watched it. And I'm I'm very curious to see why that is. I wish I could come up with a coherent answer to that. But it is an abstract kind of surreal comedy, as we talked about in the episode. So I asked this week... What's your favorite surreal or abstract movie? And I got some really good 
responses. Chris Talent can always be counted on to respond on Twitter. He came in with, would Brazil count? Otherwise, I have to go with Animal House or being John Malkovich. And then he chimed in a few minutes later saying his co-worker said Groundhog Day every day of the week, ironically, which I, I love the thought of somebody every day watching Groundhog Day. You know, there's been a great meme out there saying that they need to announce a sequel to Groundhog Day and then just re-release Groundhog Day. Uh, the Kunka said Adam Sandler movies come to mind, maybe Grown Ups, because it seems a lot uh, like a lot of improv fun. The worst parts were the ones you could tell were scripted. And the Lost Young Podcast said Holy Grail. Over on our Facebook page, uh, Thomas Mariani said the undervalued Zucker Abrams Zucker movie Top Secret. James Rodders Rodriguez said After Hours, which is a Martin Scorsese film. Tony Jackson chimed in that Troma finally released Terror Firmer on Blu-ray. Luis Ramirez said Brazil and being John Malkovich immediately come to mind, but my current favorite is Isle of Dogs, and Chris Eklund finished us off with Anything Monty Python. So some good recommendations in there. It's almost always a good time for some Monty Python. Uh, being John Malkovich brought up a couple of times. I love that movie. I, I, it's, I have to admit it's been years since I've seen it. I probably need to revisit that one at some point soon as well. And I have to admit, I've never seen Brazil in its entirety. I've only seen bits and pieces of it. I keep adding it to my Amazon Prime queue, and then they remove it from Amazon Prime. So it's one of those movies that kind of comes and goes from the Amazon Prime's offerings, which ties into what I was saying when I opened the show, is why do these movies not just exist in a state where we can access them? We've gotten to the point where that really should be kind of where we are. So keep in mind, every Friday I do ask a question on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Have Not Seen This and on Facebook where I Have Not Seen This podcast. Let's move into this week's movie, which moves significantly away from the abstract or surreal comedy. Uh, the movie is Strange Days from 1995. Uh, it's an early Catherine Bigelow film written by her then-husband, James Cameron, and was brought to the show by Matt Slayer from the And Now We Drink podcast, which is a very different podcast than the one you're listening to. And I would... Uh, give a word of caution before diving in blindly to his podcast and listen to my interview with him where we talk about his podcast and, and kind of where he came from as far as that goes. Uh, it's an interesting podcast, no doubt. I'm not trying to, to throw shade it on any means, but I would just use caution before you dive into it. Two points to talk about, unfortunately, about this week's episode, and the first is the audio quality is not at the caliber that I usually try to have for this show. I am not sure what happened. Um, originally, Matt's audio from this was almost completely and totally unusable, and I thought this was just going to end up becoming a lost episode. I didn't think I was going to be able to recover any of his audio. It was so low and so muddy. Uh, I, I put it through a lot of different processing and have come up with something that was finally usable, but it's not the highest quality. Uh, and that said, as I was editing the episode, my audio starts to fade out in places. So I'm not sure what was up with the per service I use for recording these interviews that day. I do know they had some technical difficulties a couple weeks later, but it's just not where I normally like it to be. So the audio on this one's a little low in places, and I apologize for that. It's not the way I want to do this show, but I did kind of want to share our conversation about this movie 
despite that. So if this is your first time listening to the podcast, you might want to check out another episode just to kind of see where I normally try to have things as opposed to the quality of this episode. It's still listenable. You may have some difficulty hearing some words here or there, but for the most part, it'll do. It's just not optimal. The second thing about this week's movie is it is time for another one of those trigger warnings. Uh, This is a kind of mystery, and at the heart of it is a story about a murder and rape. And the rape is portrayed on screen in a rather dramatic fashion. It is not violent, but it is an essential part of the movie. And we do talk about in the episode that it's kind of important to put it out there for the audience to see, just as the characters experience it the way that it exists in the movie. But if you are sensitive to such things, this may not be a movie for you. Uh, It is one of my favorite movies from a long time ago. It's been ages since I got to watch it, and I'm really happy that I got to sit down with Matt and chat about it and have the excuse to revisit it, even if it was a Dickens of a film to try and track down, out of print and not available digitally, even for rent. But that's beside the point, and it is a point that we do talk about several times in the interview, so let's go ahead and get to that. Here we go, 1995's Strange Days. So your podcast is very different <laughs> from <laughs> a lot of the other podcasts that I've been introduced to. You you kind of take that not safe for work thing to the extreme there. Uh, depends on what your job is. <laughs> that That's a valid point. Um, so what, what inspired you to create your show um so i was working a random nine to five where i was listening to a lot of podcasts and i went man i actually know a lot of people because i before working that job have worked in porn for the better part of a decade and i'm like i know a lot of people why am i not doing a podcast i should do this and just pure fucking ego oh i'm so used to being able to just oh profanity yeah, no, profanity's fine. I, I am, okay. I'm marked as not safe for work. I I just Fuck don't have yeah. adult stars on my podcast. Fuck yeah, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> give it time, give it time. Yeah. It's going to be really awkward for you when they're like, well, I want to re- review a porn. Funny, funny enough, when I worked as a film critic, I did have one company uh, ask me to review a movie, and I said, sure. And when they sent me the screener, it was a porn. We, <laughs> we did not end up reviewing it. My editor-in-chief said, no, we're not doing a porn on it. Oh, that's a bummer. It's film. It's independent film. You should support it. <laughs> so anyway, pure ego is what you were saying. Pretty much. I mean, it was just pretty much like, oh, uh, you know, I know a bunch of people. It'd be fun. Let's do it. And, you know, four years later, still doing it. Yeah. And doing some, from what it looked like, some live shows. Yeah. Uh, do an occasional live show. I get booked to host <laughs> nude oil wrestling or women's cage fighting and they want live podcasts while we do it (laughs) yeah that is definitely not an avenue that most podcasts go down but if it works for you man more power to you hey a gig's a gig yeah there you go (laughs) i mean on top of it i actually produce for other people as well so where my shows that side of things i'm also producing for people like you know i have a show coming out soon that's for a chiropractor that's essentially an infomercial so, you know, I run the whole gambit of the podcasting world. Gotcha. No, I was waiting for you to say it was like an Amish podcast, which, you know, would, would actually be a complete contradiction. But, you know, that's that's about the end, other end of the spectrum that we could get from your show. <laughs> fair, fair. Uh, 
the Amish podcast, we tried to do it, but, you know, trying to generate electricity on the, it was a whole thing and they were, <laughs> just didn't work very well. So, uh, so are you a movie guy? I am indeed. I like, I'll, okay. I could send you a picture of my wall of DVDs. I had strange days on physical media. So, yeah, which, you know, I thought I did too. And it, it turns out it hasn't been from what I could find. The last printing of the DVD was like 2009. It hasn't, it's been out of print as far as DVD goes for like forever. And it's not available for streaming anywhere, which is one of the reasons we had to delay this. And I'm just, I'm a little flabbergasted by that. I'm, I'm used to the movies that people pick for this show not being readily available on streaming. And I think that's almost a defining trait of movies that people haven't seen is you can't find them streaming. So obviously people haven't seen them, but this one took it to a whole new level. <laughs> the only Blu-ray copy I could find was actually for like the Japanese uh, uh, region. So it wasn't encoded for our region DVD players. Yeah, I, I saw that too because I was like, oh, because I have a standard DVD. Right. And I'm like, oh, I should get it on Blu-ray. And they're like, oh, nope, not even for the proper region. I guess I'm just sticking with DVD. Yeah. So you're looking at like $45 for an out-of-print DVD copy or uh, hopefully you can find it secondhand. But that's that, that was a new factor of this show is the fact that I just couldn't find the damn movie to revisit it. And I've seen it, but... You know, I, I, honestly, it's been so long since I've seen it that I was pulled back into the story because I didn't remember it, which was kind of cool for a detective story when you don't remember who did it. So you're kind of back enthralled in the story again. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's one of the magical parts of that movie is seeing it for the first time and being like, whoa, whoa that took some turns I wasn't expecting. Yeah, really? So we are talking about 1995's Strange Days, directed by Catherine Bigelow written by James Cameron and Jay Cox, starring Rafe Fiennes, Angela Bassett, Juliette Lewis, Tom Sizemore, Michael Wincott, Vincent D'Onofrio, and Glenn Plummer. Have you ever jacked in? Have you ever wire-tripped? You ready? No. Oh. <laughs> this is not like TV, only better. This is life. It's a piece of somebody's life. It's about the stuff that you can't have, right? The forbidden fruit. Straight from the cerebral cortex. I mean, you're there, you're doing it, you're feeling it. Are you beginning to see the possibilities here? I am your main connection to the switchboard of souls. I'm the magic man. This has got something to do with the water. Sooner or later, it washes up on your beach. Fan mail from some flounder. <laughs> it's the dark end of the street. How do you like it now? He records it all. Everything. And gives it to you. Why me? There's more to this whole thing than you think. Give us the tape right now! <laughs> you don't know how high up the food chain this thing goes. Do you know what this tape could do if it got out? I see the world opening up and swallowing us all. This is conspiracy paranoia. The issue isn't whether you're paranoid, Lenny. The issue is whether you're paranoid enough. No more games. Whatever's going on, you have to get out of here now. Get him out. This tape is a lightning bolt from God. It can change things, things that need changing before we all go off the end of the road. Been all out war and you know it. No! 
Or maybe it's time for a war. Oh, man, cheer up. World's going to end in 10 minutes anyway. So how do you describe this movie to someone who has not seen it? How do you sell them on seeing this movie? First and foremost, I just go like, this is one of my favorite movies. I, just Whoever I'm trying to sell it to, just first and foremost, especially if they're over at my place and see the wall of DVDs I have. <laughs> like, this is one of my favorites. You know, it, it's a near, well, now it's in the past, which is really weird, but it's like, it's a near future kind of crime noir, you know, directed by Catherine Bigelow, written by James Cameron, and then I don't get too much into the actual plot of it. Because I gotcha. feel that that's a bit of a spoiler. It's like, no, 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 you need to sit back and experience the whole thing. Yeah, this one was not set very far in the future when it came out. I mean, it's it was made, it was released in 1995, and it's set December 30th, 1999. So it, it's kind of interesting in that it was one of those I, were set in the future, but not very far in the future. It you know it's outdated within four years of its release date. It is, especially it very much plays upon Y2K themes, which for some of the listeners may not understand what that was all about. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So why this movie? Out of all the movies you just said, you have this massive wall of DVDs. Why out of all of those movies do you pick Strange Days to talk about today? Um, It's just, without fail, one of those movies that if I get an opportunity to watch it, I will watch it. Like, I am such a fan of this movie, I actually have one of the quotes from it tattooed on me. Which quote? Paranoia is just reality on a finer scale. Oh, yeah, that's this movie has a lot of good quotes. That's why I asked which one, because I can think of three off the top of my head. And oddly enough, that isn't one of them that I would have thought of. So and uh, I actually got that tattooed on me at, at a point where I was doing a you know security gig and where I could possibly get shot at. So <laughs> see, I would have think you would have gone for the uh, the question isn't whether or not you're paranoid. It's whether you're paranoid enough. That was actually when I got the tattoo done, the one I was going with, it was like one or the other. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I, I believe in the full quote on that involves Lenny. It, you know, he actually says Lenny in it is why I didn't go with it. Ah, uh, yeah. It was, I thought it'd be weird to have Lenny tattooed on me. Yeah. At least, you know, where it's coming from though. One of my, my favorite stories of the past few years was seeing, you know, I was training at a place that I worked at. I was a trainer and I was training a guy and he showed me this tattoo that he was in the middle of getting done and when he told me he hadn't had the words put on it yet it was you know a picture and it was going to have words overlaid on top of it and when he told me the, the quote i was like oh you didn't strike me in this case it was doctor who i was like you don't strike me as a doctor who fan and his response was huh oh he no. didn't even know where the quote was from that he was getting tattooed on his body <laughs> oh that's a shame <laughs> so what is your history with this movie uh i gotta say i did not see it in a theatrical release. I saw a trailer for it like around 95. And I think I discovered it on DVD maybe around 99, 2000. Um, I started just buying DVDs all the time in those days. And I actually found my DVD copy in a bargain bin for $5. Oh, God, you're killing me. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> and that was $5 in the early 2000s late 90s so you know there's been some inflation yeah i guess so if i'm gonna have to pay 45 dollars <laughs> for a copy of it i guess there is some you know the only thing i can think of not to not to jump back to that topic but this is a fox movie 
So I almost wonder if it got pulled off of streaming because of Disney acquiring Fox and Disney, you know, they, they're not going to put rated R movies on Disney plus. So they just haven't figured out how to deal with that branch of things. Yet. That's I, the only thing I can think of. It's been off streaming for a long time, actually. Oh yeah. Cause I'm actually, I, I can't prove it cause I bought a lot of digital movies via iTunes as well. I'm pretty sure I bought it digitally at one point, and now it's gone from my library, but I can't prove it. Yeah, and I know that happens with some movies. I thankfully haven't had that happen yet, but part of the reason I still tend to buy physical copies of movies as opposed to digital is because I heard of that happening far too often. I should. I'm also lazy and sometimes impulse buy things. It's like, oh, hey, what's new on iTunes? Oh, hey, that's $4? Okay. Well, you know, digital movies are... are uh, are supposed to fade. They're designed that way. So (laughs) (laughs) for those who've not seen strange days, that's a paraphrasing a quote from the movie, which deals a lot with memory. Uh, So the, the part that Matt didn't kind of give in his description about how do you sell this movie is it plays a lot with the idea of memory, virtual reality, that kind of thing. There's a technology at the heart of the movie, which is where people wearing what they call a squid, And they do explain in a little bit of exposition what that stands for, but you essentially are recording your memory straight from your cerebral cortex onto a disc, which can then be sold so other people can experience what you saw, what you felt, all of it. Um, It's not TV only better. It's straight from the cerebral cortex, I think is what he's, what our main character says when he's trying to, to peddle these. And that's, that's our main character is he deals in black market vids these black market memories although he has a moral code he doesn't do snuff films i don't Uh, deal blackjack clips right and he is impressively played by ray fines now understand in 95 this is ray fines second picture off of the heels of really blowing up in schindler's list you know in schindler's list he plays the the head nazi as far as the story is concerned and he's just a real shitbag. And then he turns around and he does quiz show where he plays just a regular guy, an educated person who ends up in the middle of the quiz show cheating controversy. And then he does this. And really within those movies, he's showing a huge range that he's not just an Oscar actor, although he does turn around and do the English patient and kind of move back into that. But he shows such a range that when later in his career, it's announced that like he's going to play Voldemort, it's not really a surprise because he's shown he's willing to take on just about any role. And yet there's just a deliciousness to his performance here and this character, at least in my opinion. Oh, the character's so nuanced uh, in his emotional range. Because in, in addition to, for anyone who's never seen this, in addition to the the murder mystery aspect of it, there's a whole love story, and you can really just see his feelings for Juliette Lewis every time they're on screen together. Yes, Matt just said Juliette Lewis. Uh, fans of mine know that she is one of the few actors I have on a list of people I absolutely cannot stand. <laughs> and this is one of the only movies that I can handle her in without just losing my mind. She's actually really solid in well, she is playing like a former prostitute turned, you know, girlfriend. Strung out rock musician. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, 
Might have been a little bit of typecasting. Yeah, it fits her type really well. <laughs> but there's a lot of nuance to this character. He's a fast talker. He's, um, you know, I, I love the scenes where he's trying to talk his way past a guard or out of trouble. And he's the, he's the one who will offer you the, the watch. You know, oh, it's a Rolex. And he'll take it off and put it in your hand. And then as soon as you're out of sight, he opens his briefcase and pulls out another one of these cheap-ass watches that he pretends are Rolexes. I mean, there's... I just love the way he plays the character as this fast talking, really charismatic guy who is also making a lot of bad choices with his life. Yeah. And the fact that the lead is not a tough guy at all. Right. Is part of what I enjoy about this movie because almost every situation where like it comes to confrontation, he tries to talk his way out of it. And then when that fails, you know, it just kind of goes about his day. well, and when it turns physical, he just get, gets his ass handed to him. I mean, oh, yeah. he's not he's not a fighter for a guy who is a former cop because before he was this vid dealer, he was a cop, he was a vice cop. And but he's he's not a fighter at all. Yeah, the, there's a line early in the movie where Max says to him like if you just carried your piece, you could, you know, make them see your way. And Lenny's just not about that. He's just all about using his words. Yeah, which I which I love cuz you know, he has the where he's he has the moment where he's trying to tell his his friend Mace how to drive, and she's like, you know, this is what I do. Shut up. This is what I do. And then later on, when they need to try and talk their way into the most popular party of the night, she's like, how are we going to do that? And that's his response back to her is, oh, this is what this is what I do. Like he knows that that's his game. And that was another amazing part about this movie is Angela Bass is absolute badass in this movie. Yeah. I almost feel at times like she's miscast just because she feels like she almost doesn't fit into this movie. And then she turns around and does something amazing that, that absolutely does fit in the movie. She, she's a, an interesting actress. She always has been, she picks a, kind of like fines. She has a variety of roles. She doesn't get herself typecast in one specific part. Oh, definitely. I mean, the thing of like, what Stella got her groove back somewhere around there, isn't it? Um, yeah. So you got like, her performance in Stella got got a groove back to this is such a range. It's so crazy. Yeah, and at the same time, you're talking about she she had just come off the heels of uh, what's love got to do with it, the Tina Turner biopic that she did, and then she does Strange Days. Stella got her groove back is '98, so that's three years later. But that's three and Vampire in Brooklyn will throw in there for good measure. So <laughs> that's four very different movies within a three four year period. She she gets Oscar nominated for some of those roles. She kicks ass in some of those roles. She shows comedic chops in some of those roles. And I, I love the fact that she does get to be such a badass in this, that she, you know, she holds her own as a character. She's not a weak character. She's not just there. In fact, at times, she's probably more kick ass than Lenny is. Most times. I mean, she <laughs> utterly saves Lenny's life on multiple occasions. I mean, if anything, if Lenny wasn't our main character, he would be the girlfriend character. Hey, that's a good point. Follow Mace and let Lenny be the side character. I could see that. So we've got Ray Fiennes. We've talked about him. We've got Angela Bassett. We've got Juliette Lewis. And then in just a weird bit of casting, you've got Tom Sizemore playing uh, Lenny's friend who has also been contracted as kind of a bodyguard for Lenny's ex-girlfriend. So he kind of gets to play the middleman as far as keeping Lenny apprised of what's going on, but technically he's working for the other side. And 
I have this problem with Tom Sizemore where he was in some made for TV movie on, I think TNT or TBS where they spammed everything I was watching with so many commercials. I can't get that performance out of my head, even though I never even saw the movie just from the commercials. So luckily I didn't recognize him at first because of this weird wig that he's wearing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I was just afraid you were going to recognize him from his porn. So no, I I can't say I've seen a whole lot of time ties more porn. (laughs) Sadly it's out there. (laughs) I'll, I'll take your word for that. Oh, that's going to be my follow up. We'll review that (laughs) out of the four actors that were, we've mentioned, he's not the one that I would have expected to be the go-to for porn. (laughs) That would have been, you know, Juliette Lewis, I think, but no, she segued into music. (laughs) Yeah. But she spends a good deal of this movie kind of naked. Oh, she definitely does. Now that's, that's an interesting element of the film. And I don't know if you have anything to contribute to that, but one of the things that I found really bizarre about this movie is you know it's written by james cameron uh it's directed by his wife at the time who has gone on to make some tremendous films catherine bigelow so you've got a female director at it and there is a a criticism that was made of the movie that if this had been made by a male filmmaker a lot of the things in the film would have been accused of being misogynistic but people don't tend to use that because it's a female director. But I feel like even though it's a female director, there's very much the male gaze going on here. There's a lot of female nudity. There's a lot of mis kind of abuse of females. Do do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, I mean, that definitely happens. You can definitely tell that it was a male writer. There's one scene during the montage of Lenny doing his business that like, Oh, Hey, we're just going to have a gratuitous hit shot. Not that I am opposed to such things. You have to recognize why it's there. Yeah. There's a lot of gratuitous Juliet Lewis just being naked. I mean, the memory scenes with Lenny are important, but you didn't actually have to take it all the way to her being naked and rubbing herself down. Yeah. And I, that was kind of weird, but at the same time, I like that moment because when she does that, she, and this is after she and Lenny have separated. That's, this is in the present and Lenny looks away. Like there's that almost shows a little bit of nobility to the character. When she strips down to moisturize herself, he looks away. Yeah. But he also very creepily a couple moments later, like stares in the mirror. <laughs> it It's a bizarre film. And yet I really like it. You know, as I said, I, I've seen it before, but it had been so long that we get into this murder mystery where Lenny gets his hands on a vid of a murder. I guess technically there's two murder mysteries going on, although one of them's already solved. It's just a, how can we catch the guys who did this? But I, I was so wrapped up in it that I didn't remember who it was. And so it was kind of fun to watch the movie unfold and, and be like, Oh, that's right. Because they totally set it up. They, they play with audience expectations and totally set it up that you have this one character. I won't say who that is, it's kind of almost all the arrows are pointing to that character. So it's like, Oh, well, it's pretty obvious that this is who our killer is going to end up being. And so it's kind of nice when the movie subverts that and, and heads in a different direction. It's a little out of the blue, but at the same time, I suspect if I had watched it, remembering who the killer was, there, there's evidence there to support that. Oh, as well. There definitely is. Um, Lenny's dealer or uh, Lenny's provider. He talks when he reviews the, the film, the snuff film, uh-huh. He talks about the, the color grade and right. talks about how that could be caused. And if you go back to an earlier scene, that character talks about 
some trauma, you know, physical trauma that happened to him or her. Sorry, trying not to spoil. No, it's, it's all good. I mean, we can spoil it, but uh, I just uh, are we allowed to spoil spoil it? Oh sure. Old movie? Yeah, <laughs> especially because of that. Yes, a twenty-five-year-old movie you will not be able to find. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so frustrating. Well, let's let me give you kind of an idea of the critical side of this. It currently sits at sixty-two percent at Rotten Tomatoes, sixty-six percent at Metacritic, and I always bring in a couple of reviews. Uh, Roger Ebert did review it. He provided the positive review and said. The movie is a technical tour de force. Director Catherine Bigelow and her designers and special effects artists create the vision of a city spinning out of control. Cinematographer Matthew F. Leonetti's point of view shots are virtuistic, especially ones in which a character falls from a roof in an apparently uninterrupted take. The pacing is relentless and the editing by Howard Smith creates an urgency and desperation. On the flip side, Edward Guthman from the San Francisco Chronicle said, It's overwhelming, chaotic, and sometimes disturbing. In the film's ugliest sequence, a rape and murder that are recorded from the killer's point of view, we see a young woman blindfolded and handcuffed to a pole, stun-gunned in her genitals, and then slashed to death with an X-Acto knife. Perhaps the point of that scene, which sent several people rushing to the lobby at a recent preview, is to demonstrate the horror of violence. Bigelow's style is so visceral, however, that her movie reminds us of a snuff film rather than a well-reasoned cautionary tale about our animal instincts. So any thoughts on those? Oh, I, I fully agree with Ebert. The, the, the rape murder scene is definitely a super, super rough scene, but it needed to be there. It needed to... Right. Because it is that brutal. His, Lenny's reaction to it is so accurate. Like, Right after he sees it, he pukes. Right. Is that brutal? And there are a couple of vids that have violence to them. The, the Jericho 1 1 is the one that we get teased throughout and then revealed later on in the film. But the, the, the rape murder one is a little earlier in the film. And yeah, I mean, Lenny can't stomach it. It's very, and again, he's already established that he doesn't deal in snuff films. So it's not surprising when he has such an adverse reaction to watching this vid. Especially because it's someone he's friendly with. Someone came to him for help you know, earlier in the film. Right. Yeah, and the vid is left specifically to be disturbing for him. It's not one that's out on the market. It wasn't given to him to sell. It was given to him as kind of a, see what I'm doing, see what I did to your friend. And I would, I would put that one on par with the next vid he gets, which is where the killer breaks into his house and is watching him sleeping and puts up the exacto knife up to his throat as he's asleep and it's like that scene creeped me out oh yeah it's so creepy it's like oh especially because you think about it it's not tv but better so he's feeling whatever adrenaline or whatever emotional response the killer had as well while he's seeing an exacto knife to his own throat right so what do you think about that the the, the fact the killer puts a squid unit on his victim so that she can feel what he's feeling as he rapes and murders her it definitely adds to how crazy and just how psychotic the killer is and it really just makes everyone go wow this is a monster yeah it's 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 disturbing i mean it definitely has some disturbing moments to it but it's it's still a really good movie and a really kind of prescient one frighteningly so 
you know, I was just making some notes as I was watching it. The opening scene as Lenny's driving through the town, he's got the radio on and there's a comment about how kids are shooting at each other at recess on the radio show. So again, this is released in 1995. Columbine considered kind of the first mass shooting at a public school doesn't happen until April 20th, 1999, four years later. In another scene, Lenny has the news on. It opens with the Fox theme song. Fox News doesn't come out for another year. So it's almost like this movie kind of predicted some of these weird things. Yeah, if it can only predict gas prices in L.A. Because, you know, the, the ones that stayed in the movie were actually pretty reasonable these days. <laughs> well, and it, it made its comment about by the year 2025, we might have our second woman president. And we're, we're definitely not that direction yet either. No, no, no. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Looking for a geek podcast? We're the Fellowship of the Geeks. We talk about comics, movies, TV, books, games, pretty much whatever gets our attention. And our attention is kind of all over the place. And full disclosure, we get a little ranty at times. Well, a lot of times. Pretty much all the time. But anyway, come check out the Fellowship of the Geeks podcast. You can find us wherever you normally get your podcasts. Do you uh, do you play any VR? Have you played with VR at all? I have not, unfortunately. I want to. Want to? Okay, so it's something that appeals to you. Oh yeah, I'm a fairly avid gamer. It's just I haven't picked up an Oculus and played with it yet. I've heard great things. Yeah, I have the PlayStation VR, so I've played a little bit. It's nothing, you know. Obviously, nothing like this movie predicts as far as that kind of technology is going to be. I don't think we'll be there anytime soon. But it's still kind of fun to to see that prediction in the movie and go, well, we might get there eventually. I don't know that they know a way to capture, you know, the, the full scope of emotion and such yet, but it's still kind of a cool concept. Oh, it's an amazing concept. And that's one of the biggest things that kind of sucks about this movie bombing is no one's ever going to explore and expand on the world because you could have so many stories set in the strange days universe yeah and and those little background things like i said the little news that's running in the background both times whether it's the the radio or the the television they really do a decent amount of world building within the world i've watched other movies that create a much more vibrant world but this one does a very good foundation for this is what 1999 looks like oh yeah there's a lot of the shots are driving or the scene where lenny's on the hood of the limo he's like on foot on La Cienega? look mm-hmm. you know it, it just gives you a feel of like oh la is not a safe place the world is falling apart and that's why that second review kind of rubbed me the wrong way as it says you know it's it's overwhelming it's chaotic well that's kind of the point that bigelow's film is depicting a world that is crumbling to the ground that they are fully confident that the world is going to end with the turning of the, the century there as it goes from 99 to 2000. And there were definitely people in 1999 who felt that way. I joked, I had a new year's party that year and I joked that I lived in a third floor apartment. So I might as well have a party because people were going to have to go up two flights of stairs before they could get to my place for looting. <laughs> so I was a polar opposite. I spent new year's Eve 99 in a basement party. 
<laughs> well, at least you were protected in case any nukes went off or something. Exactly. Like that. We we were underground. We were we were prepared. We were also prepared for all our PCs to not work, and that was not a problem either. No, and it's almost funny watching this right now because you know we're hitting 2020. Apparently, there was almost a a second coming of the Y2K bug when the ro- year rolled over to 2020. There have been several video games that reported bugs specifically because of the year switching to 2020. Oh my god. Come yeah. on, guys. <laughs> this is a problem 20 years ago. We're not right. running 486s anymore. Come on. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's hilarious how we don't learn from our past. Well, that can be said a lot about <laughs> modern America, but eh, <laughs> yeah, not this show. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we talked about our, our four main leads, but just kind of some of the other actors that are in there. The plot centers around these two cops who are kind of crooked. And the first time you see them, they're shooting at this woman that we're following and they're kind of in the background. And it's not till later in the film that they're brought into the foreground. And when I saw the first scene with them hunting her down, I was like, that looks like William Fitchner, but there's, there's no way that William Fitchner would do something like this. No, it's, it's William Fitchner. Oh yeah. And then the other one is Vincent D'Onofrio looking so so young i know it's like wow even you know i guess that's the b story like your b story villains are actually pretty big actors it's, it's kind of crazy yeah i i would well i i would say both william fitchner and uh vincent d'onofrio are probably bigger names than michael wincott who were set up to believe he he is kind of the a story bad guy in that he's the new over controlling boyfriend of Juliet Lewis's character. So he's the rival for Juliet Lewis for for Lenny. And people probably don't recognize the name Michael Wincott. They probably do recognize the name Vincent D'Onofrio, but Michael Wincott has a very iconic voice and you might not recognize him when you see him, but it, as soon as you hear him you're like, "Oh, that's the bad guy from The Crow." Exactly. That's <laughs> how everyone remembers him. For exactly. Yeah, and he's done other movies. Uh, but that's that's kind of his big powerhouse tentpole is the crow. He felt a little out of place in this movie to me. Like I didn't buy him as a m- music producer, although we are all supposed to believe that he has become addicted to these vids. So maybe that's part of it. Is but I didn't buy him really as a rival to Lenny. I didn't see what he had to contribute to getting Juliette Lewis further ahead in her goals. I just I don't know. It, it that was the. There were two parts of the movie that felt kind of empty to me, and that's one of them, was just him, his character didn't feel right to me. Who would you more see in that role? Because I, I like him in that role. Boy, that's a good question. I, I, Off the top of my head, I can't think of anybody. I don't know. I just, I felt like, I, I don't think it was a problem with him in the role, as it was just a problem with the role not being developed enough. It was almost just too mustache twirling, this is the bad guy, but there's no real depth to him. So, why did faith go to him? Right. Where did where did they meet? Where how did he usurp her? Was right. She's exactly. doing an open mic somewhere and he just like, hey, that's a hot former prostitute. <laughs> <laughs> or I can imagine like maybe she moved her way up to being a call girl and then like he met her that way. Yeah. I mean it's, we don't know. And I feel like that's a that was a plot device that they could have filled in a little bit more just to make that a little more believable. And it's not that I have a problem with him as much as I just didn't develop. They didn't develop the character enough for me. That's true. I mean, there 
there's also a lot of Lenny and Faith's story that is not developed either. Like, where did they meet? Because you see where Lenny meets Macy. Right. But, He's the cop who's taking care of her kid when she comes home and finds that there's been a crime at her house. And her first concern is, you know, where's my son? And Lenny's the one taking care of him. Yeah. Well, it, I don't think it was a crime at her house as much as they were arresting her man. <laughs> right. Because he was a, dr- a drug dealer or something. You know, right. Lenny worked vice. And I'm glad you said that because that's what I got out of the movie. And then when I was looking at the reviews trying to pull bites for the show, one of them said that Lenny was taking care of her son after her husband was killed. And I'm like, her husband wasn't killed, was he? No, no. He's, she's, he's in jail. As, as that scene unfolds, he's being taken away in handcuffs. She hits him as they're taking him away. Right. That's what I thought. So where was this critic getting that from? Watch the movie, damn it. Right. <laughs> I know there's a lot going on. But her husband was not killed. Yeah, no. So, but Lenny, the important thing is Lenny was the protector of her child. When she got home, that's how they met. But you're right. We don't really know how Lenny and, and Faith met. And that could have been a vice arrest. I mean, something similar. She was a prostitute. But that's something that they just never get into. It's just like, oh, yeah. Vice cop is dating a prostitute. Okay, cool. And I can't believe I'm saying they needed to add stuff to this movie because it's two and a half hours long. It's a long movie. And it's action-packed. Like, it's just, there's very little downtime in it. There's always something moving the plot forward. They do a yeah. really good job with that. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, that's, when I when I looked at it, it was like, I don't remember this movie being two and a half hours long. But then I was watching it, and I, again, I was I was pulled in. I, I was glad to revisit it. Thank you for bringing it for the show, just so I had an excuse to revisit it, even if it did take forever to track down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry for costing, like, more production budget than normal. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, it's no problem. It's I, 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 we'll just say I got a copy and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's a tax write off, right? <laughs> so there's a really, you know, so we, we don't know where Lenny and faith met, but there's a really fascinating conversation between Lenny and Mace about faith because Mace doesn't, he asks, you know, she, she tries to be the reality check for Lenny, who's not exactly grounded in reality with his career. And she says, you know, it's over. It's done. She's gone. She's with someone else. Move on. Why are you still doing this? And he asks her, have you ever loved someone who didn't return it? And I think that's a very defining moment for his character. You know, that's who he is. He still loves her. She doesn't love him anymore. Oh, yeah. And it's just the whole way. Like that woman haunts him. You you tell from the first interactions with Max and Mace in the bar that you know you can't bring up the F word. Yeah, that is you're one hundred percent correct. That is just one of Lenny's defining traits. Well, and then further in that conversation, he talks about not he can't let go of his promise to take care of her. You know, he promised to keep her safe, and even though she's not his problem anymore or he's not his responsibility anymore, he still doesn't want to let go of that promise. And I think that also says a lot about him. I, I made the, the comment being noble earlier, the fact that he looks away when she gets naked, even though he's still in love with her. But I do think there's some nobility to this character. Oh, definitely. I mean, Lenny, in his own messed up world, tries to do the right thing. He, he I be- legitimately believe that he feels he's providing a service and that he's not a smut peddler or you know a criminal he just you know he is providing a need and there's nothing wrong with that 
he doesn't deal blackjack clips. He doesn't want to see people die. Because, you know, the clips are all fun in games when no one really gets hurt. No one permanently dies. It's just all his moral code. His, His moral compass doesn't point due north, but he does have one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He has one. It may not be on the same level that we'd like to think we ours is on, but he definitely has some semblance of, of a moral code. That's a, that's a good way of putting it. Oh, what is uh, Omar from the wire? A man's got to have a code. I have never seen the wire. Oh my God. I, need, I know I need to fix that. I've, in fact, I've watched several things that have had direct references to the wire in the last couple of weeks. And I keep going, well, I'm not getting that reference. <laughs> Did you watch uh, what was it? Cedar point? Uh, no, not yet. Okay, because uh, there's a very big wire reference in that movie. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about the ending. So for those of you who are uh, want to hold off until you can find a copy and don't want the movie spoiled, we're going to talk about the ending here because there's a couple of things I want to comment on or ask you about. So you can jump ahead about five minutes or so into the the closed credits here. But (laughs) so Max, Max is our killer. And as you, as I said, I didn't see it coming because I'd forgotten it's been so long since I've seen this. And you're saying there's definitely evidence there to support that. So the earlier bar scene, when they when you first meet Max, he talks about the 22 brain floating around in his brain pan. Right. Then later, when Dick reviews the the snuff footage, he's like, "There's something wrong with the color grade. It's like someone has brain damage that could cause it." Oh, I totally missed that. That's really clever. Okay. The movie spells out some of the other points where they've dropped clues, but that one I totally missed. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's super subtle. It takes... <laughs> if I have not watched that movie a ton of times, I've definitely missed it on multiple viewings of it. But that's that's part of the beauty and the beauty of the writing of this movie is there's just little subtle things here here and there that just, you know, on repeat viewings, like, oh, oh, that was foreshadowed. Oh, nice. <laughs> well, and the thing I love about the ending is that they, they separate Mace and Lenny. And Lenny gets to gets to be the hero for Faith, except for then he doesn't because it turns out that Mace was right. That was a really bad idea. <laughs> but he gets, he gets a resolution to his storyline with Faith. And meanwhile, Mace, a black woman, gets the resolution to the murder of the black man. And... This movie, I, I know it was in part inspired by the riots that followed the Rodney King beating. I know that Cameron originally came up with the idea before that, but that really kind of propelled the world forward. But it really is commentary on that level of racism. When the two cops are co- are chasing, who is it? What's her name? Lily? Iris? Uh, Iris, yeah. Iris. When the two cops are chasing Iris early in the film and they have to check in, they tell their dispatcher that they're chasing a middle-aged black man, because if they had said they were chasing a young white woman, somebody would have looked into it. But by saying they're chasing a middle-aged black man, nobody's going to question what they're doing, which is really social commentary. That's still sadly astute today. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately it is. It's just, yeah. Come on, America, get better. (laughs) Yeah, really. But Mace gets to be the hero of that storyline. She gets to be the one who pulls everything together there she gets to be the badass action hero for her part while lenny's getting his ass kicked <laughs> one another social commentary part is like they handcuff mason beat her at one point 
and it incites a riot. Right. She becomes the new Jericho one in that moment, because that's what was causing all the riots that were going on before was the fact that Jericho one had been shot and killed. That's what was behind a lot of the riots that you're watching throughout the movie and her being openly handcuffed. She becomes kind of the new Jericho figure. She becomes the figurehead behind that movement. It's an explosion of racial tension because these police are just beating her mercilessly while she's handcuffed. Yeah. And, and so I I love that. I love that Lenny, Lenny gets max mace gets the crooked cops. Well, sort of (laughs) because they kind of take care of themselves there at the end. I love that resolution. I don't feel like the kiss between the two of them at the end is deserved. Well, I mean, they, they definitely play up that Mace is in love with Lenny the whole time, and he's just too stupid to realize it. Yeah, she does say, I care about you probably more than you re- realize. I, I remember that. Well, and plus the line of, like, haven't you been you know, in love with someone, even if they didn't love you? And Mace looks at him like, yeah, you dummy. Oh, that's true. I don't know. I just didn't feel like they earned that moment. I, I I think you're right. They do establish Mace having feelings for him, but he, first of all, he's been wrapped up with Faith the whole movie, and then Faith just revealed her true face, and I don't think he would quickly move on to kissing the other the other girl so quickly. Well, it, it falls under rom com rules for a girlfriend. You know, <laughs> you know, doesn't matter how involved you were with the other person, you know. When it's time for you to fall in love with the lead, you fall in love with the lead. I guess part of it is I'm watching this on the heels of having finally watched John Wick the other day. And one of the things I really appreciated about that movie is they didn't try to throw a romance in for him because he's supposed to be mourning the death of his wife. And, you know, so that felt right. And here it just felt, I don't know, it just felt undeserved for me. And maybe I'm wrong. You obviously liked it. I'm okay with it. I mean, I'm, I'm not like, oh, my God. Go Mason Lenny, or you know, if they just had a handshake and walked off, I, I would have enjoyed the movie either way. All right, anything else you want to say about Strange Days before we move into our uh, end credits here? Um, I mean, we touched on it briefly, but the POV shots in this movie are revolutionary for the time. Yeah, the fact that they had to develop new technology in order to pull those off, especially lighting the sets, was apparently quite a bitch because they had to hide the lighting in order to be able to let the cameras roam free. Yeah. I had never done any filmmaking on multiple views of this movie, but you know, in more recent life, I've been involved in some filmmaking. It's just like, wow, how did they accomplish this stuff? Especially in 95, they're shooting on actual film. Mm-hmm. Those are some big cameras. And mm-hmm. yeah, as you said, the camera's just going everywhere. How do you light that? How do you, yeah. And especially like, it seems like seamless takes in a lot of cases. Yeah, and they did, I mean, and, and you know, Cameron has come out and said they definitely cheated. He did some of the editing on the movie, couldn't get credited because he wasn't a member of the Editor's Guild, but he, he admits that they did very well conceal some cuts in those takes, but they, they play really fantastically, especially uh, Iris's video, which is that pivotal one you were talking about, you know, that's not released until late in the movie. Her, her video, all one uncut take, is just amazing. It is. And, you know, the fact that in 95 they did this and this movie bombed. How did this movie bomb is mind boggling. Yeah, that's a good question, because I, I was interested in it the moment I first saw trailers. Now, I will admit I didn't see it in the theater, but 
I, it, it had my attention from the first trailer. Part of that for me was also because I was a huge fan of Ray Fiennes on the heels of Schindler's List and was really curious with what else can this man do. I loved Quiz Show, which also didn't do very well. I don't know. It, it, again, both both critical sites only have it in the 60 percentile, so it's not like it's an overwhelming success by the critics either. True. I mean, there's definitely some 90s action fluff in there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the The whole scene where... Lenny ends up going down the elevator and that, that whole fight sequence is just like, oh yeah, this was definitely made in the 90s. <laughs> All right, well, definitely a movie worth a look, uh, but here we go with our end credits, some other movies that might be worth a look. We, we do The Algorithm Says. These are other movies you might like if you like this one. This is kind of a lightning round of other movies, your reaction to these other titles. Do you like them? Do you not like them? Uh, do you not understand how the hell they're connected with Strange Days? Because I got to admit, a couple of these, I don't see the connection. Okay, let's do it. All right, so first up, Point Break. Well, obviously, it's part of Catherine Bigelow's big 90s four. And, yeah. Right. Are you a fan? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and very upset that they made an unnecessary remake of it. <laughs> what was going to be my next question is, what do you think about the remake? That is one of my biggest problems with Hollywood in general, is the fact that they're unwilling to take chances on new IP and they're just like, Oh, we'll reboot, recycle and uh, rewash anything that anyone ever enjoyed. Yeah, I I agree. We don't tend to talk about those remakes for very long. We talk about the original ideas. Yeah. They're just like, Oh, we'll see if we can cash grab off of someone's nostalgia. And then almost without fail, it's never as good as the original. And it's not like point Blake's an amazing movie, but it's damn entertaining. All right, uh, Near Dark. Mm, I'm drawing a blank on Near Dark. This is also a Catherine Bigelow film from 1987. A small-town farmer's son reluctantly joins a traveling group of vampires after he is bitten by a beautiful drifter. Hmm. Yeah, I'd never heard of it before. So I is don't, it like I her don't, first film? It must be. I don't have her, her filmography in front of me, but it must be. Let me pull up the old IMDb real quick. <laughs> uh, next up, Dark City. Really? I mean, I love Dark City, but really? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I don't see the I don't see the the connection there at all. Yeah, all I can think is urban sprawl at night. That's still uh... <laughs> And and it's kind of noir. Both films are kind of noir. I mean, that's uh, yeah, I I told you some of these are weird. Yeah, that <laughs> The Abyss. Okay, well, yeah. Written by James Cameron. Yeah, it makes sense. It's there. I like Abyss. Escape from New York. <laughs> That's another... They're just like, movies shot at night that are post-apocalyptic? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. Yeah. Trust me, it's about to get weirder. Okay? Oh, God. Warlock. Huh? Really? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they were just like, well, this movie kind of bomb, so we're just going to throw darts at a dartboard and see other movies that, yeah, th that works. I don't get it at all. Nope. Don't know why. Yeah. All right. I heart Huckabees. What? <laughs> <laughs> I told you, this is like the weirdest suggestions I've seen. I heard, is there even any common cast there? I, I don't think so. Like, I did, I have IMDb pulled up. I'm like, I, I... <laughs> Because I Heart Huckabees is like, isn't that Charlie's Theron? No, yeah. it's not Charlie. Well, it's directed by you know, Divo Russell. Right. Uh, no, it's Naomi Watts. Oh, Naomi Watts. I, I 
yeah. Okay. Yeah. Literally no no cast in common at all. No plot in common, no setting in common. And and so your last one is also in that same category, the singing detective. I don't what? (laughs) (laughs) Which is Robert Downey Jr. playing a man with brain damage who sees things break out into musical numbers. Well, that sounds like an interesting film, but it sounds like it. I finally watched it a couple of years ago. It's not. It's not a really good movie. <laughs> well, I never, never said it was going to be a good movie. It just sounded interesting. <laughs> All right. Last, we have the pop quiz for qu- multiple choice questions that are inspired by the movie. Uh, are you ready for this? Oh, as ready as I'm going to be. <laughs> All right. Uh, the title of the movie, Strange Days, is a reference to an album by what classic rock band? A, The Eagles, B, Sticks. C, The Doors, or D, Queen? The Doors. Yep, The Doors, absolutely. Which, interestingly, interestingly enough, Michael Westcott was in the film The Doors. Man, if they could have only just shoved Val Kilmer somewhere into Strange Days, it would have been great. Oh, there you go. <laughs> All right, number two, the lead role of Lenny Nero could have gone in quite a few different directions. Which of the following actors was not a consideration for Lenny? A, Arnold Schwarzenegger, B, Sylvester Stallone, C, Tom Cruise, or D, Bruce Willis? I'm going to go with Schwarzenegger. Sadly, Schwarzenegger was considered for the role. He was actually a heavy contender, which I can't even imagine this movie with Schwarzenegger in it. Oh, that movie. uh, The best part about it is like the movie might have been a box office success at that point, but would have been horrible. Yeah. Schwarzenegger playing a a fast talking con man. Yeah, that that's just mind-bogglingly bad casting. Yeah, no, Stallone was the one who wasn't considered. So, among those who were considered for the role, Schwarzenegger, Denzel Washington, Michael Keaton, Tom Cruise, Jeff Bridges, Mel Gibson, Bruce Willis, Andy Garcia, Nick Cage, Patrick Swayze, John Travolta. Sean Penn, Bill Paxton, Dennis Quaid, and Kurt Russell. And there's a couple of those I can imagine. I can imagine Denzel. I mean, but it would have definitely changed the race dynamic. True. Yeah, I could picture Denzel doing it. I could picture Nick Cage doing it. That'd be a weird performance, but yeah. It's Nick Cage. (laughs) I can't imagine Tom Cruise. No, I can't imagine Tom Cruise not wanting to be a badass. Yeah. All right, number three, Strange Days had an 80-day shooting schedule. Of those 80 days, how many were spent shooting at night? A, 22, B, 44, C, 77, or D, 80? 77. Man, good job. Yeah, 77 out of the 80 days were spent shooting at night. And if you work in film, you know night shoots are kind of miserable. So the fact is that most of this shooting schedule was not a lot of fun for people. Oh, yeah. I can imagine between... That and the lighting. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All right. Last question. As Lenny watches his past with Faith, she throws a towel at him and orders him to dry me. This is an intentional reference to what other iconic sci-fi film? A, Escape from New York. B, Starman. C, The Terminator. Or D, Blade Runner. Blade Runner. Yep. Blade Runner. Good. Three out of four there. Not bad. Yeah, I was going for that 100. <laughs> Where can people find you? What do you want to promote? Well, obviously, I would like to promote myself. And and now we drink. I drop new episodes every Thursday at noon. It's a very different show than this. I drink with guests, and I uh, 
it, it gets a little wild. It's definitely uh, not safe for work unless you have a fun job. <laughs> available anywhere you get podcasts. Uh, we also have video versions on Vimeo at anwd.net slash videos. One of my other new projects that I'm producing that drops in the near future is also I am producing a podcast for Catherine Kendall, who is one of the lead plaintiffs in the Weinstein civil trial. And she is oh. interviewing other sexual assault survivors. And it's called Roar with Catherine Kendall. We should be dropping our first episode sometime in the near future. That's pretty impressive. That sounds very cool, man. It's really, really moving stuff. It, some of the stories are really rough to listen to, but it's it's compelling. And, and just as the producer, it's just like, wow, the, some of these people are monsters. <laughs> All right. Well, I really appreciate getting the chance to, to watch Strange Days again. And uh, I really appreciate our conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. My absolute pleasure. This was a blast. So that does it for this week, but you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. You can find me at Town Hess on Twitter or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter. On Facebook, we're at Have Not Seen This Podcast, or you can always email me at Have Not Seen This at gmail.com. Of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week, where we're heading to Nantucket for one crazy summer before college begins. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, as is just sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Matt Slayer for providing this week's conversation. Maybe you have a movie you'd like to talk about, one that means something to you or you're particularly astonished when you discover people have not seen. Well, come be a guest on the show. Head over to havenotseenthis.podbean.com, click the Be a Future Guest button, submit the form there, and we'll get you set up for a future episode. Until next week, I'm Rave Telsh, and this has been Have Not Seen This. <laughs>